Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. His abiding belief he has a way out of Gaza if he wants it. But British-Palestinian Mohamed Halaini is risking his life to stay. He'll tell us why. European disunion. Criticisms of Israel are mounting across the continent, but the EU is nowhere near united on how to proceed. And one MEP tells us consensus is still a long way off. Kicking and screaming, there is international outcry over the news Saudi Arabia is the last bitter standing for the 2034 FIFA Men's World Cup. A former Canadian diplomat says if the strategy is to use the spectacle to cleanse the kingdom's image, it may just end up doing the opposite. Out of the pictures, one state senator has taken issue with a mural put up by a local pride group. So now a New Hampshire town is floating the idea of banning public art altogether. Bluegrass Roots organizing in Kentucky. Hundreds show up for a huge jam session in an attempt to form the world's largest bluegrass band. The band leader tells us, despite those numbers, they made some beautiful music together. And uncrowning achievement. A British supermarket announces crownless pineapples to reduce food waste and packaging, although they will still sell pineapples with crowns for anyone who's missing the points. As it happens, the Wednesday edition. Radio that guesses you can de-leave it or not. For people in Gaza, there is finally an escape route, but it's a narrow one. Hundreds of injured Palestinians and some foreign passport holders were allowed through the Rafah border crossing into Egypt. Meanwhile, the Israeli military siege of Gaza continues, and residents continue to struggle with shortages of food, water, and fuel. Israel has admitted it was behind strikes on the Jabalia refugee camp, which brought down apartment buildings. It said the targets were tunnels beneath the buildings where Hamas fighters were sheltering. Mohamed Khalayini is a UK citizen who was visiting family in Gaza when the war started. We reached him in Khan Yunus in the Gaza Strip. Mohamed, I believe you, you just heard some explosions. Can you tell us what happened? There's been, like, there's always Israeli aircraft circling uh, above mm-hmm. Gaza. So there's, like, fighter jets circling. And uh, just maybe 20 minutes ago, um, I, I think one of them dropped a bomb. We didn't. Like, it's it's sad to say that it's become so normalized that we don't even, like, look to check where the bombing is coming, unless it's really close to you. Where are you right now? How are you keeping safe? I'm very lucky to be in a, an apartment with 16 of my family members, um, about four or five to a room. Uh, we still, we're struggling, struggling to get water. Water is our biggest struggle. Power is also a big struggle. I guess in terms of keeping safe, uh, it's really, you know, hard to say 
that we're doing anything ourselves that can keep us safe because our safety is not in our hands. Our safety is at the will and whim of the Israeli Air Force. Um, and so is the safety of 2.3 million other Palestinians in Gaza. You were out at the Rafah border crossing today. Were you able to get your father and your uncle out? That was your plan in going there. What happened? My uncle got out, thankfully. Uh, it was really sad to see him go. He, we were very close, uh, and he's a great source of support. But in the end, his, his nuclear family were in Egypt, uh, and I think he was, you know, he was struggling. No one's not struggling here. Everyone's having a hard time. Yes, yeah, so ultimately, I'm glad that he's safe and on his way to see his family. My father uh, and his kids, less success in the sense that when I looked at the list of uh, names uh, that were approved to go out, uh, they weren't on the list. I myself had also like told the UK government that I was in Gaza and have my name put on a list, but I, I was very conflicted about leaving and, um, you know, but recently I made a decision to um, to stay. Why? Um, Why did you make that decision? I think, like ultimately, what it comes down to is the challenge that my people are facing in Gaza and in in the whole of Palestine, Gaza, and the West Bank. Uh, Israel is conducting uh, genocidal ethnic cleansing on our people in different guises, and for that, firstly, it was important that I take a stand and stay to be with my community. Not all of them had the privilege of being able to just wave their foreign passport and, and get the hell out of Dodge, you know? But even um, if it all mis- means I, risking your life. <laughs> Look, we've got one life, yeah? And so in, in some ways, we have to treat it as like the most precious thing in the world. And I think that's important. But at the same time, you know, we've got one life. And that means that... If we find an opportunity to make a difference in the world by standing up and not being pushed out of our land, then it's important to take it. Just to going back to the border, can you, because there are so many people have been waiting so long for this window of opportunity, can you just describe what it was like there? I think like the first thing that comes to mind is it was sad 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 because you know it's a sad day when people have to leave their homes under threat of violence and secondly desperate because ultimately these people were there because they had no other option but to leave how long have you been staying there yes i've been in gaza now uh, since uh, september 18th when we travel to gaza we always it's a difficult journey anyway you have to cross the sinai it's hard uh, that's a very hard process Uh, and then you always expect potential israeli attacks uh you know israel has been attacking gaza periodically every two years since like 2002 and um so yeah we always know it's coming and it's been happening regardless of hamas Hamas attacks and you know I think it's it's important to acknowledge the Hamas attacks on the 7th of October because uh, you know I think no one no one with a good conscience conscience will like stand for for that um, and I, I don't stand for the killing of civilians in any in any way on that Hamas we've seen it is a real threat 
a spokesperson for the IDF, was on our program after the attacks and said that the IDF's goal is to root out Hamas. And that's what they say they're doing right now. What, if not this, should they be doing in your view? I'd say firstly that I think that is a very bad faith argument from the IDF spokesperson. The Israeli army has been trying to do this military kind of solution for the Palestinians for, for ages. You can't bomb your way to justice. I again I you know, I feel their pain. I think it's important to acknowledge that what happened on the seventh of October was a horrific act. But then at the same time I think it's important to, to think what is what is something that will actually lead to peace and I think something that will lead to peace is 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 security peace and justice for Palestinians and that is the recipe for uh, for peace uh, for Israelis and Palestinians so so we need a ceasefire that would save lives and then proper good faith international efforts towards a peaceful political solution uh, that that is what we need. Just before we let you go, Mohammed, back to your decision, the one you said sort of crystallized for you today in those difficult moments at the crossing. I'm sure your your loved ones and friends in the UK are, are very worried about you. What would you say to them to explain your decision to stay? My, my mother and sister are particularly worried sick. Um, you know, I think I'd say to them that I don't plan, I don't plan to die I will I will be safe I will find a way to stay alive and I will also say to them that we're in this struggle together to you know spread the word about the struggle of the Palestinian people and that I'm doing it here on the inside and they're outside supporting me and we're all playing a role and uh, and that I love them very much, and we'll hopefully meet again uh, under much, much better circumstances. You know, I think we just need, really need to, to, you know, everyone in the world needs to kind of look and say, how can I make a difference? And and how can I make sure that my government regains its moral compass and, and stands up for what's right, rather than just having an immediate reaction that uh, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. <sighs> Mohammed, thank you for your time. Please stay safe. Thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Take care. We reached Mohammed Khalaini in Khan Yunus, Gaza. Saudi Arabia is frequently criticized and condemned by human rights groups for its record of executions, assassinations, and crackdowns on freedom of speech. So what better country to host a beautiful celebration of the beautiful game? There are literally dozens of better countries. But now that Australia has removed itself from contention, Saudi Arabia is the sole remaining bidder for the 2034 Men's World Cup. It's just the latest in a series of moves by Saudi Arabia to increase its profile in the sports world, a strategy that's been called sports washing. Dennis Horak is Canada's former ambassador to Saudi Arabia. We reached him in Toronto. Dennis, how would you describe the fact that Saudi Arabia might get the 2034 World Cup? I mean, it looks like that's what's going to happen. So how would you describe that bid? 
Well, it, it's consistent with what they've been doing. We've seen in a number of other sports with Live Golf, with their involvement in the English Premier League football, also trying to uh, encourage and, and pay uh, exorbitant amounts of money for internationally known footballers to come play in the Saudi League. So it's consistent with what we've seen. It's also consistent, I think, with a lot of countries when they bid for these kinds of events, whether it's World Cup football or the Olympics, trying to use that as, as prestige, as a way to show off their country, to encourage tourism, business, what, ha- what have you. Mm-hmm. Is it sports washing? It is. I mean, the, the, the term sports washing, is, it's, it applies, I think, in this situation, but it's also not a very effective strategy. As we, as we saw a little bit with Qatar with the World Cup, when you have these large events and a lot of press show up and in advance of the event itself, the press naturally looks at the situation in that particular country, particularly one where people don't tend to go visit a lot. And so any effort to try and uh, sports wash or whitewash or somehow hide whatever warts the country has gets much more attention than it otherwise would have. So it's not a very effective strategy for hiding your um, human rights record or or whatever concerns uh, that are out there. Based on your knowledge of Saudi Arabia, what do you think the strategy is? Well, they've got they've had this uh, this uh, reform Vision 2030 program, which is a econ- mostly economic and social reform effort, which has been actually very effective. There are very positive developments that happen on those sides. It's clearly not on the political side, and it's never been part of the reform effort. And so the 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 FIFA event, the World Cup, was going to be 2034. So that will be sort of at the end or of the the time frame set out for this uh, ambitious reform program. So I think it's an effort for them to try and show up that Saudi Arabia is a a more normal, uh, in the words of of Crown Prince Salman, but uh, Mohammed bin Salman, but also to just showcase Saudi Arabia uh, as a place to visit, as a place to invest, that it's, it's different from the wider perceptions in the world, that it has this modern, new, economically and socially reformed country that perhaps doesn't jive with the broader international image. So it's all about image burnishing, which is frankly why a lot of countries bid for these sorts of events. When you talk about, you know, reporters coming, should this event go ahead there, you certainly know what it's like to be at the center of Saudi response to criticism, something it doesn't like. Uh, back in 2018, you were expelled from your position as part of the, the broad fallout of a tweet from the Canadian embassy in Riyadh calling for the release of women's rights activists being held in Saudi Arabia. So if Saudi Arabia does become the host of the 2034 World Cup and that there is scrutiny and criticism, how well do you think that will play out there? What kind of reaction will there be? I think they'll they'll fully expect it. They'll they've seen they saw what happened with with Qatar with some of the attention that was placed on the treatment of migrant workers in Qatar, and they know there's going to be criticism. And I think they've sort of baked that in. I think they're hopeful that the the reform efforts and the the continued quote unquote modernization and normalization of Saudi Arabia will be well along uh, the road and that there'll be a lot of good stories that will sort of Mm -hmm. blunt some of those. We don't know what Saudi Arabia is going to look like 10 years from now. and I've stopped predicting. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I've saw massive changes from when I was there in the late 90s to 2015. We've seen a lot of regression as well. So it's hard to predict. We've seen the state, we've seen the kingdom accused of killing a journalist, right? Yeah. Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. that's, That's exactly right. And, and, you know, prior to that, there had been a lot of very positive changes 
And then we saw what happened with, with the Ritz uh, roundup of, of business people and royals. We saw the detention of women's rights activists. We saw the, the, the horrific murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So it, it, my, my point, I guess, is really that it, we, we've seen these, these steps forward and then massive steps backwards. And so it, it's hard to say what 10 years from now will look like. And I think they're banking on the fact that they will have progressed uh, sufficiently that 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 some of these uh, other issues will be in the rearview mirror or will be outshone by by some of the, uh, the, the progressive steps. Progressive is not the right word, but some of the progress that they've made between now and then. That I think is what they're banking on. Yeah, I know you said you don't predict, but progress in terms of PR or actual progress in terms of human rights and there democracy. Has been, there, there has been progress yeah. on, on human rights on some of the social and economic reforms that have happened, certainly mm-hmm. in, from what I saw in terms of the role of the religious conservatives in Saudi society, the, the, the withdrawing of the religious police, for example, from the streets, some of these, mm-hmm. the women's driving, which is which is a high-profile thing, but wasn't, frankly, as, as, as big an issue as for many Saudi women. But some of the changes that have happened in terms of women in the workforce, these are real changes. Mm-hmm. Is it enough? Absolutely not. Is there a need for political reforms? Yes, there is. Will that happen between now and 2034? I don't know. I, I wouldn't think so. But uh, it, it is a possibility. From FIFA's perspective, as you look at that, is this, do you think, about money only or, as they've said, growing the game of soccer? I think FIFA is always about money. Hmm. Certainly growing the game of soccer, I think, is, is, is also Leads an important to money. objective. <laughs> but it's it's about the money. And I, I don't think really uh, FIFA has an ethical lens through which they look at anything, to be honest. It's about no other bidders as well, as far as I understand it. Australia has withdrawn. So they want countries that are willing to spend the money. There's not as many of those around anymore. And you get countries like China and Russia and and, and Saudi Arabia and Qatar and others who have uh, have the money to spend or had the money to spend on it and want to convey a certain message. I think that's sort of where we are in these large events at this point. Dennis, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, no problem. Bye. Dennis Horak is Canada's former ambassador to Saudi Arabia. We reached him in Toronto. About an hour's drive south of the Quebec border is the picturesque town of Littleton, New Hampshire. And this past summer, three murals, sponsored by a local LGBTQ plus charity, were painted on the wall of a private restaurant in the town. Just three bright spots on an otherwise unadorned wall. And since then, there has been chaos. A conservative Christian state senator and member of the town's three-person select board has taken issue with the murals. But banning artwork with LGBTQ themes could raise constitutional challenges. So now the town is considering banning public art altogether. Courtney Vashaw is the president of the local theater company, Theater Up, which operates out of the public opera house. We reached her in the nearby town of Whitefield. Courtney, what do the murals that started all of this, that are at the heart of all of this, what do they look like? The murals are absolutely beautiful. They're not huge. They are three small panels that fit into the window slots that were kind of overboarded up windows in Littleton. And they depict scenes of nature, really. They have a dandelion, they have some birch trees, they have an iris, and 
it's the iris that's the, the mural that I think is in true question because around the iris is a color wheel. And that set off a bit of controversy over being a, a symbol of the LGBT plus community. And, and it was set off by a town councillor who's also a state senator, Carrie Gendro. Uh, so yes. the, the color wheel, uh, you know, sort of the, the LGBTQ plus rainbow idea, is that what, what she said she took offense with? Yes, she's looked into the, the deeper symbolism as she interprets it from her religious perspective of the iris being uh, associated with sort of a, a, an older pagan goddess and that this has, you know, sort of satanic implications. Did you know much about this town councillor or her views before this? Um, she is a known entity. You know, she has supported our work in the theater before. She's well-known around town and as a business leader. But I did have some familiarity with her political and religious background. She um, was pretty overt about the fact when the abortion debate was up for debate in New Hampshire that she believes in serving her God and her faith above her constituents. So that, that definitely raised my eyebrows. This story came to us from our, our CBC News colleague uh, based in Washington, Alex Panetta. He wrote a piece yes. about this for cbcnews.ca. And he, he also wrote about, you know, the steps that have come since that initial complaint from the town councillor slash state senator. Yes. And that is this so-called nuclear option. What would that right. option be? So that is a potential ban on all art in public places. Everything. And that... Everything. You know, they, they understood the fact that, it, that they didn't want to get into the business of censoring each individual piece of art on its own. So the best next option, apparently, would be banning all art in public places. This is one complaint we're talking about? So this stemmed from the murals, but apparently this has been percolating in the back of Carrie's mind as she has seen more artwork go up that she thinks, you know, crosses that line into potential satanic or demonic messages or things that overtly support the LGBTQ plus community. You know, and she, she said very specifically that, you know, Littleton can't go down that road and we, we can't have more art that encourages acceptance of the gay community. How many people live, live there? Um, Littleton is just around 6,000 people. Mm-hmm. But when you are talking the North Country, it's sort of community with a capital C. Littleton is the hub of all of that. And so when you talk about it being a hub, the hubs are where arts and culture often live so that people in even smaller communities can come to them. And you're part part of that community. So what would losing public art mean for Littleton? Littleton has flourished in the past 10 years as a community. And part of that is because it has really cultivated this quaint downtown and its art scene. It is beautiful and vibrant and colorful and it's attracting young families. It's attracting businesses. So when you have a a governance that's talking about removing all of those beautiful, vibrant pieces from public space, that's going to hit people's pocketbooks. I, I can't understand why that would be something people would support when we all know that art and culture is a driving force behind economic development. It's certainly part of your life uh, as well. So what would it mean for your theater? So currently we perform 
in the historic Littleton Opera House, and that is a publicly owned space. And as the policy is currently written, the select board ultimately has final say over what happens in that space. So from a a short-term perspective, there was talk about trying to ban the performance that we are staging this coming weekend, which is La Cage au Fall. Mm-hmm. Or the birdcage, as some may know. The birdcage, right. As you know, people who saw the movie with Robin Williams and Nathan Lane will know, that um, definitely drew some attention of, you know, this is a, it's a play about a gay family. And that's definitely right in the crosshairs at the moment. In the long-ish term, you know, middle term, we have a lease that runs through May. And as of May, they can choose not to renew our lease. We were trying to work through a, a long-term partnership. We have the, the money and the, the funders behind us to build a performing arts venue in Littleton. And our, our best bet was to work with the town and renovate the Littleton Opera House. And our organization was looking at putting $10 million into that building in a collaborative partnership to really bring it up to speed to be a 21st century space and letting it be the heart of downtown Littleton. And we just can't proceed with that, with an organization or a town governance that's saying, you know what, we we might ban public art. And we are looking to censor the kinds of things that happen in public spaces. Courtney, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for wanting to hear our story. Courtney Vashaw is the president of the Littleton Theatre Company, Theatre Up. We reached her in the nearby town of Whitefield, New Hampshire. Condemnation from the international community has been growing in the wake of Israel's strikes on the Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza. Bolivia has severed diplomatic relations with Israel. Jordan, Chile, and Colombia have recalled their ambassadors. And in Europe, the EU's foreign policy head, Josep Borrell, has said he is, quote, appalled by the high number of casualties in the camp. But the EU remains far from united in its handling of Israel's war with Hamas and its tolerance for civilian casualties. And many of its member countries continue to resist calls for a ceasefire. Thijs Rutten is a member of the EU's Committee on Foreign Affairs and part of the European Parliament's Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats. We reached him in Amsterdam. Thijs Rutten, how have Israel's latest strikes on the Jabalia refugee camp, in your view, from where you're sitting, changed things for the European Union? I think that everyone who sees uh, the devastation there is equally disgusted of what, what the human suffering that we see there, as we were disgusted on the 7th of October by the horrendous attacks uh, on Israel. But uh, since also EU countries, together with their allies, with the US, with Canada, uh, said to Israel that, um, of course, they could defend themselves against terrorists, uh, but also expressed um, uh, almost unconditional uh, support. Uh, I think we have to confine that now because this is really getting out of hand. Uh, I mean, going after the terrorists that perpetrated these horrendous attacks, yes, but you need to do that with a plan. And bombing a refugee camp uh, is not a plan. So, yes, I see a slight uh, change in the tone of voice uh, also last week uh, at the European summit, but it's not enough. The uh, the European Union should now join in asking for, at a minimum, 
a humanitarian ceasefire. There are deep divisions in the European Union. As you well know, we've heard France call for a coalition to fight Hamas. We've seen Hungary argue that aid to the Palestinian territories should be suspended. So given those divisions, how are you going to get that message across to Israel, the message you've just stated? Yes, of course, it's awfully difficult to get everyone on the on the same line. But I think that that we need to understand and we need to uh, be aware of what it also is doing in our societies. Because I'm also worried about the divisions in our societies that have been caused, I think, by the initial uh, responses from European leaders. And what's more, uh, we lost leverage over Israel because uh, apparently Israel is not listening anymore, not even to the U.S. uh, government, when the U.S. government also called for at least some kind of limitations to the humanitarian suffering in in Gaza. This is not the solution uh, for this this, uh, this conflict. We need to relaunch the peace process. You said you sensed a shift. Will we hear something different from the leadership? (laughs) a slight shift in tone last week at the European Council, although... But the tone uh, isn't isn't policy or direct demands no, of Israel, no, no. right? That's exactly, what's actually exactly. going to make a difference. So so what is going to make a difference is that when people will realize that this is not uh, going to lead to anything uh, close to the release of hostages, the relief of the humanitarian uh, catastrophe in Gaza, or bringing any security to both Israel or perspective to the Palestinians. We need to get the peace process relaunched. But yes, it's difficult. The slight tone of voice last week at the European Council consisted of a call for humanitarian pauses. I think that was not going uh, far enough. I think we do need a a ceasefire uh, now and then see uh, how we can uh, relaunch this peace process. I want to talk to you about the potential peace process, though many can't even um, envision how that could happen now. But but I do want to ask you as well about the vote at the UN, the vote on a humanitarian truce to cease yeah. fighting. Canada abstained from voting, saying the resolution yeah. did not do enough to acknowledge the atrocities committed by Hamas on October 7th. Your own country, the Netherlands, also abstained. Why? Well, I, I, I would not agree with that. I think uh, the Netherlands uh, should have uh, voted in favor of that resolution and then uh, adding to that a condemnation of the terrorist attacks of Hamas. And I want to also recall that there were other EU countries who voted in favor of Mm -hmm. the resolution. There were also countries who voted against. So, yes, there was uh, a division among uh, the European uh, uh, countries, but you also have to take into account that a majority of other countries in the world uh, that we also have to take serious really voted in favor of this this resolution. So it is also important that the European Union and Canada and the United States and the UK do not lose sight of what the sentiment is in the rest of uh, the world without, of course, denying Israel the right to uh, keep its people safe. Austria, Croatia, the Czech Republic and Hungary are the European nations that voted against that resolution, along with Israel, of course as well as the U.S. and others. Yes. I wonder why you think, sir, that this is still so divisive for the international community, given that international laws, as you've said, are are not being adhered to. I fully agree agree with you, because that is exactly the problem. Because if you say in the beginning that you unconditionally support uh, Israel in its right to self-defense without immediately 
um, how do you say that, confining that, limiting that uh, clearly with a clear uh, uh, boundaries, uh, as we know that we have in the international law, then um, you, you, you end up in a situation where we are, uh, where we are now, that we see, um, in my opinion, like the bombing of the refugee camp two times, um, clear uh, examples of war crimes. And um, I think that, um, that that is something to take very serious because at the end of the day, when everything seems very complicated, uh, the only thing that can save us is to fall back to humanitarian law, to human rights and to the basic principles of, uh, of humanity. And just finally, before we let you go, when you talk about peace talks that could come yes. one day, what do you see as the path to getting there at this point? Well, I fully agree with you that we have probably never been further away from this peace process in the last three uh, three decades. But um, there's no alternative, really, because ultimately real security for the Israeli people only will come when there's also a uh, sustainable perspective for Palestinian children to be after maybe sometimes four times, four generations growing up in refugee situation, uh, actually have a future. Uh, and, 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 and that is the problem because the terrorists, they only want one thing. They want to keep the conflict going because it's fueling them. It's helping them uh, to recruit new people. That is the circle, the vicious circle we have to break. And we were close or relatively close early 90s after the Oslo uh, agreements. But I'm the first one to admit that we are very far from from that stage now, from relaunching that peace process. Nevertheless, I want to remain hopeful for uh, for stopping this, this, this uh, terrible suffering and relaunching this peace process. Thijs Ruten, thank you for your time. Welcome. Thijs Ruten is a member of the EU's Committee on Foreign Affairs. We reached him in Amsterdam. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. The opposition parties are continuing to hammer the Liberals over carbon tax concessions that disproportionately benefit people in Atlantic Canada. Today, Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev took steps to force a non-binding vote on the issue in the House of Commons. The motion will ask the federal government to expand its exemption for home heating oil to all home heating fuels. Here's the opposition leader taking aim at the Liberals in question period today. 
questions. The question is for the Prime Minister about the carbon tax chaos he has unleashed. He has paused the tax on some heat for some people, leading the government of Alberta to threaten a lawsuit, the government of Saskatchewan to threaten not to collect the tax, NDP provincial parties in the West even turning against it, and some First Nations saying the entire thing is illegal. Will he reverse all of this chaos and just axe the tax? The Honourable Minister. Mr. Speaker, let's actually bring the temperature down and talk about exactly what we've done here. We've accelerated the replacement of home heating oil for heat pumps. Mr. Speaker, it's a national program, and if the Premier of Alberta and the Premier of Saskatchewan want to make sure that people who heat their homes with oil in those provinces have access to the same heat pumps, you know what they can do, Mr. Speaker? They can join three Atlantic provinces and BC and sign up for a plan and help low-income people in their province. Will they do it? Time will tell. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Mr. Speaker, the question was for the Prime Minister. Right. He has unleashed carbon tax chaos across the country. After saying he would never bend, he backed down because I kept beating him in these debates in the House of Commons. And he put a two-year pause on some heating oil for some people, causing Saskatchewan to threaten not to collect the tax, Alberta to threaten a lawsuit, six provinces coming out against the plan, First Nations saying it's illegal. If he's so proud of himself and what he's done, then why won't he stand up now and defend it? The Honourable Minister. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, the Honourable Leader of the Opposition seems to be too busy patting himself on the back to actually do his homework. <laughs> At the end of the day, heating oil costs anywhere between two and four times the price of natural gas. It is a particular driver of energy poverty in this country. We have taken steps forward to improve affordability by enabling the, the, the implementation of heat pumps, which will save people up to $2,500 a year, but doing so in the context of a plan to flake climate change, something again that the Leader of the Opposition has said nothing about in the years since he became the Leader of the Opposition. That was Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson in the Prime Minister's absence responding to Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev. Before them, you heard Employment Minister Randy Boissonneau. When a couple of brothers from Kentucky got the idea to try to break the Guinness World Record for the biggest bluegrass band, they didn't realize how hard it was going to be, or how easy it was going to be. Hard because, as they discovered, there was no previous record for biggest bluegrass band, so they'd have to create it. But easy because, you know, there was no previous record for biggest bluegrass band. But there is now. That is 510 people playing and singing Will the Circle Be Unbroken in Owensboro, Kentucky this past Saturday. Randy Lanham is a music teacher and one of the brothers who organized the event as a tribute to their late grandfather. We reached him in Owensboro. 
Randy, it's lovely to listen to. How did it feel to to be in that huge band playing the song? Oh, it was unreal. It was just a magical moment, to say the least. When you have 510 musicians and singers surrounding you, singing the same song, and and pretty much everybody (laughs) in tune together, it was wonderful, for sure. Did the turnout surprise you? It did. I, I, you know, we advertised it a lot around here in Owensboro, Kentucky. So that's all we could do is advertise and hope that people showed up, and they certainly did. And when it got to, it was around eleven thirty. You know, maybe one hundred and fifty or so people uh, coming around. I thought, you know what, <laughs> we're we're not going to have the numbers, but it was like a, a super rush at the end, and all these pickers and grinners and singers just came from everywhere and, and uh yeah so it really did surprise me and you know so it's bluegrass so we're talking banjos and fiddles obviously but just yeah. tell us about the that huge mix of instruments performing this yeah it was again what was beautiful about it yeah we had banjos fiddles mandolins guitars basses some ukuleles some harmonicas playing mm-hmm. uh some people just singing and not playing instruments at all what was beautiful is to see multi-generations playing together. Uh, I witnessed one time where there was three generations uh, of families that that were playing together. I heard stories later on about uh, people that hadn't touched an instrument in years that that this sparked their interest again. So they picked it up and started practicing before they came. And people drove from three and four hours away just to be a part of this special Mm -hmm. event. So it was just, it was more than I anticipated, you know. I, I knew I really wanted to do something special in honor of my granddad, John Lanham. And I knew it was, you know, one of, it just turned out so special, even more than I could imagine. Well, we all need a little joy right now, so so I'm sure everyone there was, was feeling the same way. But there's a risk, too, when you bring that many musicians together in one place. It could have sounded terrible. So how did you coordinate <laughs> to make sure it sounded lovely? Well, uh, that's a great question. So ahead of time, probably about four or five weeks before we attempted this uh, Saturday, I had put out a video on YouTube uh, just kind of for people to be able to practice along with, and I included the chord charts and fiddle and mandolin tablature. and So that was very helpful. That was huge, hugely helpful there. But also, uh, we kind of had a core band. There was uh, seven of us on stage. It was just me and a bunch of my buddies. But is that what we call ringers? Playing. I'm sorry? <laughs> is that what they call ringers? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I brought the ringers in, and, and so we were on the microphones, the main microphones. Now, had we not had a sound system and not someone leading, it probably would have been a train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good. You had those that, that professional uh, baseline to keep everybody uh, on track. You know, you, you mentioned your your granddad. What do you think he would have said if he was there watching this all go down? Well, he was the most humble man I, I had ever met in my life. I can imagine him just being <laughs> just overwhelmed with joy. He loved music more than any human on this earth, I believe. He loved to play and he loved to make people happy by playing. So going to the nursing homes, uh, playing at church, wherever that was, he loved to spread that joy. So if he was there, I, I just, 
I can imagine him just saying, Randy, I, I can't believe we have this many people. <laughs> I can't believe this many people turned out. I can't believe this. Uh, but, but I tell you, he was just so joyful in, in playing music and then spreading it. And then he always told me, this was something else that was so special. He told me, seems like a thousand times, he said, Randy, pass this music along, pass it along. And so there was probably close to a hundred of my students or former students in that crowd that day in this band. So that made me very proud. And I know that he would have been proud again, because he always reminded me, pass down the music, pass down the music. So, And he taught you how to play. Is that right? Yes, he did. When I was 11, he gave him, gave me my first fiddle and uh, started to teach me to play. And then he started taking me to all these jam sessions and these festivals and, Anytime anybody had a barbecue or, or uh, we would go to the hospital and play for patients, we would go just about anywhere anybody wanted to hear music. A lot of square dances, too. <laughs> oh, I remember square dancing from uh, from high school. Uh, not so much lovely bluegrass music like you're playing, though. That's another story. <laughs> Does the, you know, was when he gave you that message of passing the music along, was it about more than just, you know, keeping that family tradition alive? Was he worried that bluegrass as a musical tradition, was under threat. Yes, I believe it was more than just the family. I believe it was, it was more of the old-time music that, that influenced bluegrass. So if you study Bill Monroe and bluegrass music, that was influenced by a lot of the mountain music. And that's really what Granddad played more of was the old-time mountain music. And so what he saw growing up, he learned it from his dad, which learned it from his dad. So it's been in my family for many generations, but I think more than just a family thing, he was he's worried about the old time music and the bluegrass music, afraid that a younger generation would lose interest. Because I, I think he saw through all these years it just less people interested in learning the music and the dance. And he saw how much joy it brought him and his family and his community, the the music and the dance and, and how they loved it so much that he just he did not want to see that just slowly slip away and kind of disappear. So he always told us to keep it alive, and we're doing our best to do that. It's a pleasure speaking with you, Randy. Thank you. Thank you so much. Randy Lanham organized a Guinness record attempt for the world's largest bluegrass band this past weekend in Owensboro, Kentucky. Four times a year, Boyle Street Community Services in Edmonton hosts a somber event. The gatherings are in memory of people known to the outreach group who've died in the roughly three months prior. And this week, the regular event marked more deaths than were ever recorded before. Between the end of June and the first week of October, Boyle Street counted 118 deaths among its community members. A staggering number that's left people in a state of grief. Lena Meadows works with Boyle Street Community Services. We reached her in Edmonton. Lena, that number, 118, what does it represent to you? It's it's shocking and it's devastating. And I, I think it represents to me just how big of a crisis we're in right now, um, not only in our city, but I, I think across our province, across our country, um, with people who are vulnerable, people who are experiencing homelessness, as well as people who use substances. There are also people who you and your organization were trying to help. Can you tell our listeners about some of the people you've lost? Yeah, it's 
you know, these are individuals who we interacted with sometimes on a daily basis, individuals who we may have spent the day with having coffee, playing cards. Um, the youngest person on our on this list, unfortunately, who died was 14 years old. Um, the oldest person on this list who died was 76 years old. So there's a wide range of individuals. And I think it goes to show um, that homelessness doesn't just affect one demographic. It's a wide range that we're seeing of, of people who are dying. Can you tell us about that 14-year-old? Um, so what I can say is that this was a 14-year-old who um, was obviously struggling. He was experiencing a lot of issues within his life. And I think it goes to show the really traumatic things that can happen to people that, that bring them to our, our doors. And obviously he was, he was 14 years old and he um, was found unresponsive outside and unfortunately died as a result of a suspected uh, opioid poisoning. You mentioned opioids. You mentioned homelessness. What does the rise in these deaths, these awful numbers and realities, suggest about what's going on? Why is this happening? I think it can suggest that what we're seeing is a lack of appropriate housing, a lack of shelters that people feel safe and comfortable accessing. Um, We also know that the number of individuals who are experiencing homelessness or poverty is growing. And we know that, you know, the substances that people are using are, are no longer safe. There is a tainted drug supply out there. And so when we typically would think of overdoses, we often have this idea of, of injection drugs. But we're seeing people who are using inhalation drugs dying as a result of overdose as well. Um, and I think it just goes to show that unless we address this problem, unless we humanize it and we stop talking about just numbers, but the fact that these really are people, the numbers are only going to continue to grow. And we need to have, you know, housing options out there that aren't a one-size-fits-all approach, but that have wraparound supports in them and medical care um, and, you know, shelter systems where people feel safe accessing. What do you want listeners to know about the people you interacted with? You know, you said on a daily basis. Just tell us about them. You know, these were mothers and fathers and sons. These were, you know, people who had hopes and wishes and were working towards a better life for themselves, whatever that looked like. And I think we have this idea often of, you know, what a homeless person is or who a homeless person is. But I think this list shows us that it's it's such a vast demographic um, and that these are people that we would have interacted with on a daily basis, even even if you weren't a social agency, um, but just within your own community or within your own public areas. You've been tracking these numbers since 2020. There's an actual increase, but also are we seeing these numbers because you're getting better at tracking them? This, the system is more sophisticated. Absolutely. I think that's part of it. You know, one of the biggest barriers that we see as social agencies, and when, especially when we're working with people who are experiencing homelessness, is that there's such a barrier in getting information about people. Um, and so what we're seeing now with better relationships and with better communication amongst public agencies and private agencies is that when information is shared, we can respond effectively with our resources and we can target areas where where folks are dying. Um, But without that data sharing and without that information sharing, oftentimes we don't know. And so there's been many years that we hear rumor of people dying or we suspect that, you know, people that we work with or that we that we care for and that we love have died. um, But we've never been able to confirm that or, or had anybody who's willing to share that information with us. I saw the the photographs all lined up that you had as part of the memorial. That was for people, you know, at your at your organization, people who knew them as well. But are you hoping to send a, a broader message? Yeah, I think you know 
part of why we've made this so public is really to sound the alarm that we're in the middle of a crisis here and that the people we love and care for are dying. Um, And they're dying at an unprecedented rate. You know, 118 people in three months is shocking. Um, And I think people should be shocked. You know, in October alone, we had 54 deaths. And I think if, if it was any other demographic and we said that 54 people died in 31 days, there would be public outrage and people would be demanding information and demanding change. And I think the same goes for people who are experiencing homelessness. If 54 people died in a month, we need to do something and we need to act now. What kind of response are you getting so far now that these numbers are out there? We've been getting such an overwhelmingly large response um, from our community, from the province, Um, People reaching out and asking, you know, what they can do. And I think really, it's really pulled the cover back on on what's happening here um, and allowing people to question in their own neighbourhoods as well. Like, are we doing enough for the most vulnerable members of our society and what changes need to be made to ensure that, you know, next month we don't see a higher number of people and that hopefully our next quarter we aren't memorialising 118 people again who have died. Well, we haven't even reached, you know, the winter months, the (laughs) deep freeze, the deep cold. Um, So what do you and your colleagues need to make sure that people survive? I think the biggest thing that we're seeing come out of this is, you know, of those 118 people that died, 80% of them died in a public area. So they died on a bus bench or they died in a green space or they died sitting on a on the ground against a fence looking for respite. And I think the biggest thing that I would ask and encourage people to do is check on the people in your community. Um, If you see somebody, just make sure they're okay. So many of these deaths could have been prevented, truly, if somebody had just checked on them to make sure that they were okay. And so that's what I would encourage people to do as we go into the winter. But in terms of officials, you know, you said you've you've received quite a response, including from the province. What are they offering you? Are they offering you more funding? You know, I, I think that's something that we'll see come out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, But I think what this shows is that we need better communication amongst all levels of our government in order to truly address the issues, because with with only one level of government addressing it or the lack of information sharing from from government bodies, we, we can't truly address the problem here. Thank you, Lena. You're welcome. Thanks for chatting with me. Lena Meadows works with Boyle Street Community Services in Edmonton. That's where we reached her. Moving towards clean energy is more complicated than just deciding to. When U.S. President Joe Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act last year, one of its aims was to invest billions of dollars in domestic energy production while also promoting clean energy. But coming to an agreement on where new developments should go or if they should be allowed at all is not at all straightforward. Now, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology is training students to be mediators in real-life clean energy projects alongside professionals. It's called the MIT Renewable Energy Clinic, and it's the first of its kind. Larry Suskind is the professor behind the course. He's the Ford Professor of Urban and Environmental Planning at MIT, and we reached him in Boston. Larry, this isn't just a class. Your students are are doing hands-on work here, albeit supervised, but how do you convince people that your students can help mediate these multi-million dollar deals? First, I involve a professional mediator with the students and the class. So it's not the students on their own. 
interacting with the facility developer and the community. Uh, the Consensus Building Institute is a not-for-profit I started 30-some uh, mm-hmm. years ago that provides mediation in some of the most complex uh, resource management conflicts around the world, a- including in Canada. And um, the uh, senior staff there is volunteering uh, at one at a time to work with these different client communities. So there is a professional mediator uh, even though I am also, mm-hmm. this is not part of MIT, but who is part of the effort that we're making. And that, I think that's reassuring that there's a person who does this for a living. The project that they're working on uh, in, in Michigan that your students are working on is, is where two solar farms are being proposed. Why does that project in particular need mediation? The the two projects involve the same developer in two locations, and uh, there was resistance uh, in in both, and they're kind of on hold. And uh, it wasn't my original plan to get involved with uh, battles that were ongoing. Rather, I was hoping to get in early, Uh, but uh, the developer wants a way to work with rather than be shouted at or shout at uh, people in the community. And the usual citing process, well, uh, a, he- a hearing, is not an occasion where they can work anything out with anybody. What is happening with the regulatory process that made you think of creating this class and training students in this way? Why is it better than the regular process? The regular process everywhere involves the public too late. The regular process in the United States is run by the private developer who keeps everything secret until they know exactly what they want to do, where they want to do it, how they want to design it, everything that they think is going to meet the minimum requirements, and then they announce it. And that's when people hear about it. Now, if you live in a place and you hear right down the street somebody's going to do this, and you're just hearing about it now that all the decisions have been made? That's what's wrong with the process. You know, you, you, you've you worked on this idea of consensus for, for many decades in your career. I wonder what the younger folks, the students who are involved, are telling you about taking this approach and, and listening without making judgments. Right. Um, you can imagine uh, they are skeptical they signed up to take the course. They really want to help. They hope this works, but they press me at every moment saying, <laughs> can this really happen? Can people who are really at odds with differing interests at stake ever sit down together and work something out? I mean, we don't have lots of great examples around us every day in the political world of people doing this, uh, but there are Lots of cases, they don't get much publicity, right? You, who, what journalist is going to write the story? People meet and agree. That, that never we makes might. it into the, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe now, in light of what we're doing, and, and just the point you made, they wonder whether they'll be able to sit between people with very different views and not identify with only one of them in a way that, of course, would negate their ability to contribute to building consensus. We know New York and California have recently passed laws to try to speed up 
clean energy project reviews in particular. It doesn't sound like you think that's the answer either. <laughs> You've got that. Uh <laughs> They, those two states, and they're more uh, going down that path, they just haven't acted yet, say this is just too much resistance locally. We're not getting the results we want when people participate. So let's preempt any local participation and move the thing right away to a state agency and hope that that util- public utility commission or that state siting agency uh, can just work around that local involvement. All that's going to do is push that opposition into the political world, out into the political world. Those folks aren't going to stop being upset. They're just not going to wait for the hearing to, to express their views or to mobilize political resistance. And they're going to bring legal challenges to those laws. It sounds like it's a skill they could use in the rest of their lives, too. I, I say that, and I don't overemphasize it. <laughs> Because I I don't want them coming mostly for that. But yes, of course, learning how to interact, to negotiate with people who have different views and values and interests from you. My goodness, I think we should be teaching that to everybody. And all of us should have refresher courses regularly. Because uh, that's what, I mean, what we see all day, every day, is people trying to do their job and someone's getting in the way. And instead of empathizing with the fact that that person has a different view, a different objective, different goals, and how can I help them meet their interests and mine? What they try to figure out is how can I beat them up? How can I push them aside? How can I get around them? Who can I get on my side that can tell them it doesn't matter what they want? And uh, we can see how well that's working, right? An alternative is called for Larry, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Larry Suskind is the Ford Professor of Urban and Environmental Planning at MIT and Vice Chair of the Inter-University Program on Negotiation at Harvard Law School. We reached him in Boston. You're at the supermarket when you run into someone who looks familiar, but you can't place them. You duck into the cereal aisle and peek around the corner. Yeah, you you definitely know them. Did they change their hair or something? You peek again. Oh, they 100% did something major to their hair. Was it their bangs? Did they cut their bangs? Did they have bangs before? Why, Why can't you remember? You peek again. Listen, pal, a security guard says as he's marching you out of the store, if ogling produce is your thing, buy it and take it home. That's your business. But you have to understand we can't have people hiding in the cereal aisle and leering at the pineapples. That's it. It's a pineapple. You didn't recognize it because it had no leaves on top. Unfortunately, the security guard doesn't care about your epiphany. The British supermarket chain Sainsbury's has just announced that it is introducing crownless pineapples, as in pineapples without the 80s hairdos. This futuristic innovation will reduce the amount of packaging required to ship them, plus up to half of the crowns that are removed will be planted to produce more pineapples, the rest will be shredded and used to add fiber to animal feed. It's a small thing, but it's something, and the fruit will look different, but it will taste exactly the same. So when you go back to the store to apologize, Do not ask the security guard if the pineapples still have that sweet bottom. He will never let you back in. 
You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.